Well, I took some time last night to uh, last night and this morning to listen to Rob's message from last week, and um, I was very grateful for how he presented Romans chapter six verses one through eleven. It's a uh, a stunning text, and if you were here last week, you got to experience that. If you weren't here last week, uh, it's it's an important message to go back and listen to in full. But the the partial version of it is that Paul is laying some theological groundwork for some very important things to take place. And that's this defining the relationship as it, as it comes to sin. How do we understand our relationship with God in terms of union with God? And how do we understand our relationship to sin now that we are Christians? And so a lot of what we'll be talking about, because Paul was writing to Christians. He's not writing this as an evangelistic letter to people that he's hoping will become Christians. He's writing this to people who are followers of Jesus and talking to them about how they relate to sin. And this is one of those things where if you're not a follower of Jesus, we love that you're here. I even was thinking as we were singing those songs, we sing a song, Worthy is the Lamb. And I can imagine if you're not a Christian, what in the world are these people singing about? Like, why are we talking about farm animals? Um, and there is, there's a lot to that. And you could imagine if you immigrate from one country to another and, and you go to a birthday party and they start singing a song, all of a sudden it's very different than any, any happy birthday song you've ever sung. Uh, it's just different. And that's kind of what it's like coming from outside of any faith background to being in a place like this, trying to understand the traditions. There are things that we do that are embedded in us that will be foreign to you, and we hope that you can even be patient with those things while you explore what it means to follow Jesus. But as you're here and you hear me talking about a Christian and their relationship to sin, I hope that it's helpful, that it stirs you to think and consider even about your own relationship to sin, and you may not fully understand what that phrase even means, but I'm glad you're here for it. But when it comes to a Christian and sin, and what it would look like to walk in obedience and righteousness, one of the big questions that, that Rob asked last week, or that ultimately Paul asks in Romans 6, 1 through 11, is, well, why? Why would we not sin? Why would we pursue righteousness? Why would we, let's say we come to faith in Jesus, you could even make a weird logical argument for more sin. If God is most glorified in taking the, the biggest sinner and washing them and making them clean, well, shouldn't I just try and be the biggest sinner so that he gets the most glory? And so the, the, the crazy weird logic of saying, I could possibly increase God's glory by sinning more, and Paul just basically obliterates that and says, no, 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 by no means. That's not even remotely close to the gospel. Yes, God is able to save even the most wretched sinner. And we could probably have a competition in this room for who the most wretched sinner is. And one of the phrases in the New Testament is that just about every person can say that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul said that about himself, but he also gave that to us to say about ourselves. Look, I'm the worst sinner God's ever met, and he came to save me. And so as you think about this idea of why don't we sin, there are three things that come to mind. And you can, I'm going to kind of repeat these as a little bit of a mantra throughout the message, but why not sin? Number one, is to honor Jesus with my body. Okay, if I have a chance, and, when, and by the way, we'll talk about our bodies a lot today. And when I talk about our bodies, I'm talking about our, our thoughts, talking about our actions, and I'm talking about our emotions. So our body, or Paul refers to it more specifically as our mortal body, 
is this thing that interacts with the physical world. You are more than your body, your thoughts, your emotions, and your actions. And it's very important for you to hear that. You're more than your emotions. This is why, as the world would tell you to follow your heart, we say, please don't, as followers of Jesus. We say, please don't follow your heart, because your emotions are actually a part of this world. They're not, uh, they're not God's voice. Your emotions are not God's voice. So we'll talk, we'll talk about that quite a bit, but our bodies... We want to honor Jesus with our bodies, our interaction with the physical world. That's the first reason why we wouldn't sin, is that Jesus would get glory in my life. The second reason is that we would want to show the world that the gospel is true. So this is, we've, we talk about this all the time. Why doesn't Jesus just suck us up into heaven the minute we say yes to him? I believe, boom, eternal life, paradise, it's on. You get to live in eternity in the most beautiful, blessed place ever. It's called Narnia, and it's glorious. <laughs> and so there's that question of, if, if I say yes to Jesus, why am I not sucked up immediately into heaven? It's because you're here for a purpose. God actually fills you with his power and his presence to do something, and that something is to show the world that the gospel is true. And you being redeemed is the testimony of the truth of the gospel. Your life being transformed by Jesus testifies to the truth of it. So if you look no different than the world, but you're like, no, Jesus is the Savior, and they're like, well, okay, what, what, are, you, what are you even saved from and to? It's not that compelling if there's no difference in you. So part of letting Jesus transform you is actually teaching the world that the gospel is true. And the third reason is to bring the kingdom of God to earth. So Jesus, when he taught us how to pray... He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, and the way that that happens, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven, something happens to earth. People start to experience love in a different way. They start to experience joy in a different way. They start to experience peace in a different way. We actually bring the kingdom of God to earth when we choose to walk in a different way. Righteousness as opposed to sin. So you have the ability to bring those things to earth. And so those would be the why. And Rob did a great job last week talking about this why. And so today, Paul's going to step into how. How do we not sin? I don't know if you've ever had that question before. I have about 16,748 times over the course of my life had that question, how do I not sin? And there is this reality that our mortal bodies, this part of us that's still here, our, our thoughts, our actions, and our emotions, this part of us that's still here does still deal with sin as a reality here on earth. And for many people, they'll get frustrated with Christianity because they thought all of those things would go away the minute they gave their lives to Jesus. And when those things are still a part of our mortal bodies... And when we find ourselves frustrated, sometimes people will then walk away from Jesus saying, I tried that, and it didn't work. I don't know if you've ever met anybody that's gone through that before. Like, ah, you know, like, I gave it a shot, and it just didn't seem to have any real effect. And so today we'll talk about how, how, 
Do we stop sinning and walk in righteousness? And I think it's an important thing. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Romans. That's the jet lag. Open them up to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 12 through 23. Paul writes and he says this. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. <laughs> you goons. <laughs> For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin... And have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get, or the fruit you get, leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right. Paul will use slave language a lot, and uh, there was an open and frequent reality to slavery in the first century. Uh, it was slightly less racially motivated than the slavery that we know from uh, this, this kind of previous era of American history. Uh, it's, it's a bit different than that. Rome was imperialistic, and they would go into nations around the world, and as they would go into nations, they would do one of two things. One would be that they would take slaves and bring them back to Rome, and the other is that they would offer the people the opportunity to continue to live as they are, with their religion, with their economy, with their business, with their elements under Roman occupation. So uh, uh, an area could say, we surrender, we submit, we will be under Roman occupation, we will pay our taxes to Caesar, but we'd like to continue operating as we are. So that happened with Israel. Didn't mean that there were no Jewish slaves in Rome, but it did mean that Israel said to Rome, we're yours. We will operate as Jews under Roman occupation. And that happened around the world. And so slaves were taken from all over the place. If you go back to Western Civ, which I know many of you still have some PTSD from Western Civ, but if you go back to that class and you start to look at the, the spread of the Roman Empire, you would actually see quite a few different nations and ethnicities represented, and there would have been slaves from all parts of the world. White, black, Middle Eastern, every which color you would find people enslaved to Rome. 
And so slavery was a very common thing, and it was oftentimes also a financial thing. So even in Rome, let's say you were a citizen of Rome, and you came up against a massive debt that you could not pay, you would essentially become an indentured servant or a slave to the person that you owed money to. And you could ultimately pay that off, or if you had a very generous owner, and I know we don't like that terminology, owner or master, but if you had a very generous one, they could release you from slave. They could purchase your freedom. And the idea of redemption actually comes from that idea of having your freedom purchased by the one to whom you owed money or time or you were bought. They could buy your freedom. So when Paul talks about slavery, this was not a foreign concept. Everybody would have had some interaction with slaves. If they were in the Roman church and they were poor, they might have either been slaves or been friends with slaves at that stage. And if they were wealthy in the Roman church, they would have either had slaves themselves or would have at one point in their story had slaves and possibly even have set those slaves free. But everybody would have had some interaction with slavery. So Paul uses that picture to help people understand certain realities, especially as it relates to sin. So the first thing that he wants to help us understand is freedom. And this idea of going from death to life did something in relationship to sin in our lives. And he talks about how previously, and this was last week's message, previously you were enslaved to sin. The only choice you had was sin. Even if you happened to do something generous or something good or something right in a uh, objective moral capacity, there was still a, a sin reality to it because you had not yet been redeemed. Paul will talk about this in Romans 14 and say, anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. And ultimately what he's getting at is, look, there's an element of us that for something to be not sinful, it actually has to come from a place of faith in Jesus. Otherwise, we are inherently sinful. And the things that we do, they are sinful. In Romans 8, Paul will talk about if you're in the flesh, as in not in Christ, it's impossible to please God. That's a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around because we would look at it as, well, there's good people and there's bad people. And there's people who do good things and there are people who do bad things. And to think of God looking at anybody that's not in Christ, whatever that they do with their life, well, even those good things, according to us, they would fall short. It wouldn't be considered good. And so Paul's talking about this and saying, previously you were enslaved to sin, but you've been set free. You've been given new life. You have an opportunity now to actually choose righteousness, whereas previously you didn't. Now, as every human being that has ever given their lives to Jesus will know and understand that just being given the choice to live righteously does not automatically produce a righteous life. Every one of us will have experienced that. You look around the room, there's not one person who gave their life to Jesus and from that point forward never sinned again. Just not the reality. And so what Paul's done is he started with theology and then he's starting to build from that an understanding of, okay, so what is this relationship with sin now? A guy that we've used a number of times named Tim Keller talks about this. He calls it a freedom to resist. This is the new freedom that we have in Christ. He says this. Before you were united with Christ, sin reigned supreme. Now the Christian is free from its control. 
but he or she can still cede some measure of power to it. We are free to fight sin and free to win, in fact. We have been freed to fight and win, but we must still fight. So we have a freedom to resist. And so with that freedom, being set free from our bondage to sin, you can now pursue righteousness. And that's what the message today is going to be talking about. One more Tim Keller quote, and then we'll get back to the text. This is what that fight would look like, to fight against sin in our lives. All right, so he says, Paul emphasizes the important role of the human will in living outside the power of sin. Believers are not helpless victims of powerful forces beyond their control, whether death, the law, or sin. Instead, because God has freed them from these powers, they can place themselves at the disposal of righteousness and God, and they must do this if they are to live in a way that is consistent with the gift of righteousness that God has graciously bestowed on them in Christ. Okay, so all of that is to help you understand you now have this ability to fight against sin in your life. You have an ability to do that, and you need to participate. It's not going to happen automatically. A British preacher from back in the day named Martin Lloyd-Jones says that sanctification is not a gift like justification is a gift. So justification is the free gift of God. You have it. That means that you've been declared righteous. You couldn't have done anything to get yourself to be declared righteous. Sanctification is different than that. God does not sanctify you against your will. He invites you to participate in your sanctification. Invites you to join him in obedience to participate in you becoming more and more holy. And why would you want that? That's our three reasons from the very beginning. To honor God with your body, to show the world that the gospel's true, and to bring the kingdom of God to earth. That's why you would want that. Okay, so now we're going to talk about, for quite a while, this first phrase, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Because this is Paul's encouragement to you to not sin. And I realize that there might be some frustrations out there as it relates to sin, because it's like, okay, that's easy to say, Paul, but there's a reality that you're not allowing for here. So what I want to do is I want to walk through and even use what Paul has given us to train you and myself how to fight against sin and to walk in righteousness. From this phrase, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Okay, so first of all, what does it mean for sin to reign in your mortal body? Uh, when you come to faith in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. None of you got a new physical body when you gave your lives to Jesus. Even when we're baptized, it's a symbol, not a real thing, that as you go under the water and you come out, some kind of uh, transfiguration takes place and you come out glowing like the presence of Jesus. It doesn't happen that way. It's, that's not the belief system of Christianity, but that something internal has taken place. And so I want you to notice something very carefully in Paul's writing here. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. There's a very significant difference between you and your mortal body. Sin can reign in your mortal body and not reign or have dominion over you. 
I realize that there's sort of some brain tweaking that needs to go on here. You, as God sees you, are more than the sum of your thoughts, emotions, and actions. Those are your interactions with this physical world, but you have a soul that is a part of you that God has dealt with theologically, and it is finished. It's done. This is how Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your status before God does not relate to how you interact with this physical world in your thoughts, actions, and emotions. The, the, the thing is, are you in Christ and is the Spirit of God in you? And then there's this whole other reality with how does that live itself out in the remainder of your physical life. That's why it's called your mortal body, because it will die. Your outer body is wasting away. Your inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul will talk to the Corinthians about that. The reality is these physical bodies, they wear down and they die. These physical bodies continue to interact with a sinful world. And again, a body is not just your, your skin and your bone, but it's also your thoughts and also your emotions. Those things relate to the world, but you are being renewed every single day. You are more than those things. Okay, can we get that? We good to move on? So-so? Okay, well, maybe it'll become increasingly clear. We'll see how this goes. All right, so first of all, what does it mean for sin to reign in your mortal body? Number one, sin inspires your thoughts. Okay, so the first thing for sin to reign in your mortal body is that sin inspires your thoughts. So think about your thought life for just a moment. Not too many people know the extent of your thought life. There are some people out there, and you might know them, you might even be one, that say most of the things that come to their mind. <laughs> but if you were being honest, even then it would be a small percentage of the total thoughts that have come to your mind that actually make their way out of your mouth or are produced in some form of action. Our thoughts are so internal. And it's a place where a lot of sin actually happens. Rob brought this up last week, that, that in order to help people understand that sin isn't just what makes its way out of your mouth or by your hands or feet, like that even the thought process. He said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I'm telling you, if you hate somebody in your heart, you've already committed murder. He actually, he joins in the thoughts and emotions with the physical activities to help us understand that, that even those very thoughts could render us sinful. So sin inspiring our thoughts. You may never act on lust, but you might be a very adulterous person in your thought life. You may never act out and murder somebody, but you may be a very hate-filled person in your thoughts. And sin can inspire your thought life. And Paul's challenging you and saying, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. How do you do that? Well, one of the ways comes from 2 Corinthians 10.5. Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
Now, if we were a swearing church, there might be some of you that shout BS at the top of your lungs to the idea of being able to take every thought captive. Fortunately, we're not a swearing church, and so you might be thinking bull honky or something like that. (laughs) Taking every thought captive sounds like an impossibility. And this this is the encouragement that I would have for you is that what's being done is you are being invited to a journey of sanctification. And that journey is going to take some time. And there are victories. And Paul wants you to remember your identity, the you, as being saved by grace. And then the you as a mortal body interacting with this physical world as being redeemed and sanctified over the course of your life. I shouldn't have said the word redeemed. Being sanctified, made holy, looking more like Jesus over the course of your physical life. But the finished work of Jesus is done and you can rejoice in your identity and then start to live out your identity over the course of time. And part of the challenge is taking every thought captive means that you are enacting discipline when it comes to your mind. Taking every thought captive might start small. Let's just say you struggle with anger, and it's usually starting in your thoughts. Taking every thought captive is the discipline of when you start to feel those angry thoughts and that imagination of what you could do with that anger start to well up, that you... Start to process through that with the Lord and say, Lord, I know these thoughts aren't from you. I know that this is not how Jesus would respond to this situation or this person or this relationship. And I want to submit this to you. If it's lust, which has been a massive struggle for so many, As the the lustful thoughts start to enter your mind, there's the opportunity to take those thoughts captive and say, Lord, I know that these are not thoughts that glorify you. And even as they're happening, there can be an opportunity to present them to the Lord and to take them captive. But let's just say for a moment that you didn't do that and you went all the way through with that thought exercise, whether it's anger or lust or fill in any other type of sin thoughtfulness that you might have had, there's even still an opportunity for you to grow, and that's through repentance, where you actually take that to somebody and say, you know what, I was continuing down this path of thinking about this woman or this man, or I was continuing down this path of anger, and it overtook me. And I want to confess it to you, I want to confess it to the Lord, because I don't want that to be the way that my thoughts go. And that exercise of confession and repentance can be part of how we would take every thought captive and grow. You will want your brain to be fixed in a matter of days or weeks to not think sinful things anymore. But the reality is this is a journey of a lifetime for you to walk in these thoughts and to learn how to take them captive and to grow in discipline and to be a more and more mature person over the course of your life, taking an increasing number of thoughts captive. This is where it's great to have gray-haired friends if you are a non-gray-haired person. Because it's very important to have somebody that's older than you and you can say, this is what I'm dealing with. And they can look at you and they can say, I can remember those days. 
I can remember those kinds of thoughts flowing through my head. And here are some of the practices that I put into place in my life that helped take some of those thoughts captive. And, and that kind of iron sharpening iron is how we might grow in taking our thoughts captive to obey Christ. And you can have victory in your mind. That's ultimately what Tim Keller was saying. Is Look, we have freedom to fight and win. You can win this battle that's in your mind. It's probably going to take longer than you want it to or than you think. But the joy of doing this is that it honors Christ with your body to take every thought captive. It does. It shows the world that the gospel is true to see your mind being sanctified by Jesus himself, by his spirit. And it actually brings the kingdom of God to earth because you yourself are thinking different because you know that your thoughts will inform your actions. You know that. Some of us have discipline to keep our thoughts from becoming actions, but a lot of us will live out of our thoughts and we'll just we'll act on the stuff that goes on in our minds. Okay, so that's the thought. The second one is that sin drives your actions. There's the thought realm, and then there's also the ways that sin drives our actions to eat, to have sex, to be violent, to cheat, to betray, to abuse. And Paul's challenge to let not sin reign would mean that you do not allow sin to be the driving force of what you do with your physical body, including all parts of your body. It could be your mouth, it could be your hands, it could be your sexual organs, like these are the realities of being people in physical bodies relating to a world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I want to get this right because I memorized it in a different version back in the day. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. I discipline my body and keep it under control. And he's actually using the, the picture of a runner in that particular you know, a uh, uh, picture that he's bringing up. He's talking about a runner that would run as to win and, and an athlete. This, this often resonates with an athlete because it takes discipline to do the things that we want to do with our body. Most of us know that if we just went out and tried to play at a top level on a field, our hamstring would go within seconds. Like we just, we know that we actually need to do the work to get ourselves up to speed. We know that we would look like fools if we were out on a field with professionals that have been training for, uh, for years. And the idea of trying to do things without a sense of discipline, Paul's actually saying there is a discipline connected to our bodies. So let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. There's, a, there's a, an element of sin driving your actions. You can be a person that's driven by your mouth, where gossip and slander and lies become part of what comes out of your mouth, and that desire to sin by even being a source of information for people. I know that for gossip, that's one of those joys, is just to be able to be the source of somebody hearing it for the first time. And so we'll share something around the room. I think there's a particularly potent episode of The Office about that very thing. And it just, it, it comes out of our mouths because we like to be the one that tells. And Paul's actually saying, well, discipline your body. Discipline your body so that you are not the source of that. For many of us, the area of sexual purity has become one that just our, 
our sexual drive produces a lot of sinful activity. And while maybe there is a a battle for our mind, there's also a battle for our body. And some people might win the battle for their body but still struggle in the battle for their mind and others are losing at both levels. And there's an invitation here to actually be a people who choose not to allow sin to reign in your body. And I get it. I get the, the objections of like, but you don't know how difficult this is. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how addictive or how persistent these habits are. You don't know how hard it is to stop. And if I could just share with you, first of all, saying you don't know, um, that that might be somewhat arrogant because you can look around this room and 100% of the people in this room are dealing with a physical mortal body in this world and a temptation to sin by their actions. Every single one of us, in some capacity or another. And you're right that everybody may not know what a sexual addiction feels like and what that pull is. But on some level, everybody here is dealing with something. So instead of saying you don't know, you can invite somebody in. You can say, I'm really struggling. And it just changes a lot of your attitude. To simply turn, instead of saying, well, you don't know what it's like, just turn and say, look, I'm really struggling with this. I don't want to sin with my body. And in turning that around, instead of pointing at somebody and saying, you don't know what it's like and allowing yourself to be the the victim of an addiction, what you do is to say, look, I'm really struggling with this, opens you up to being a vulnerable person and willing to allow somebody to help you walk towards purity. It's a very important shift if you want to see Jesus honored in your body. I could really use help here. And the last area, the third area, would be our emotions. Sin likes to inform our emotions. Now, I want to share a couple of things with you. Uh, We believe that God created your emotional spectrum. As human beings, part of who we are is emotional beings. We have joy, we have anger, we have sadness. There's a, a pretty significant range of emotions that, uh, that we're all made up of at any given moment. And I, I do realize that we're in a world that, that wants to um, box in those emotions. Living in excess in any of these, those emotional areas can be considered not a good thing. And that at the same time, the world is also trying to get you to actually live as um, in response to your emotions. To follow your heart. Love wins. These are the kinds of phrases from a world that would say, no, your emotions are who you are. If you feel it, it must be true. You have to consider for just a moment, is that, is that how God made our emotional spectrum? To be the driving force of how we would live in any given moment? And the answer to that is no. God gave us an emotional spectrum, 
but then he also invited us to have control over our emotions. So he says this in Ephesians 4.26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Okay, so this is an example of an invitation to control your emotions. So be angry and do not sin is actually, there's, there are times when anger might be an appropriate response to a situation. Okay, the idea of you should never be angry, well, that might actually mute some of your heart for justice. And so there might be times where anger is an appropriate emotion to experience when you learn something that might drive you to do something, even something righteous. And so the call of God on our lives is not to, under any circumstances, to never be angry, ever. Same with sadness. We're not told not to be sad. In fact, we're taught proper ways to mourn and grieve. God actually takes us down the path of mourning and grief as a part of our human existence. He even knows what happens to people for eternity, and he still teaches us how to mourn and grieve. Jesus knew the state of Lazarus, yet when Lazarus died, he wept. There's a reality to even our human experience of mourning and grief that God would want us to experience. But there's this call on us because sin loves to inform our emotions and then let our emotions drive us to be something that we're not supposed to be. So let not sin reign has to do with our emotions being brought under control in submission to God. Now, if I could say this, you cannot do this apart from the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And I probably should have made that disclaimer with the body, uh, our actions, and with our minds as well. Sorry. But this emotional area, it feels like one of those areas that is um, out of our control right now. And we have a world that's telling you that it's not controllable and it shouldn't be controllable and that you should run down the path of those emotions. And the reality is you are called by God to submit this mortal body and to not let sin reign over your mortal body. To choose that sin is not going to have the, the reigning, informing role over your emotions is something that you now have freedom to do. Once again, I'll say this. You'll probably want to have mastery over this in a matter of days or weeks. But the reality is this is a journey of a lifetime. Even reading Ephesians 4, you might look at that and say, be angry and do not sin. No, there's no shot. That's not an impossible command. It's an invitation to walk with God and to let not sin reign in your mortal body. So in this, there are some things that you can do. Uh, you can bring community into your spaces, your thoughts, your actions, and your emotions. It's a great place to confess and repent. I say, I let my emotions drive my, uh, my response I, I, yes, my, my body reacted and I, I 
did not have control. My thought life spun out of control and I sinned in my thoughts. And these are areas that we can actually go to one another and say, okay, I, I could use help. I did this. I'd like to grow. And then we have people that can speak into our lives and, and challenge us and encourage us to grow. Now, what I probably should have done is been aware that Romans 6.12 was enough to teach an entire sermon on the first half of Romans 6.12. Um, <laughs> because it is pretty much time to wrap up. <laughs> I used to remember this growing up at my dad's church. We would, uh, he would say, okay, here's what we're going to teach on. And it was just everybody chuckled whenever he said, this is our verse for today or our section for today. Um, let me just take a brief moment and see if there are critical things to say here. I think, um, uh, I don't know if you fully understand when we use the word prophetic, what we might, what we might mean when we say that. Uh, whenever we talk about prophetic, it's not always saying, hey, I'm going to tell you the future. Uh, sometimes there are moments where we might feel prophetically like the Lord has us uh, stay in a moment, um, kind of rest on something. And, and even in that, uh, is, there, is there a prophetic reason why God would have us stay on let not sin reign in your mortal bodies? And uh, just as I spent a minute looking ahead at the notes, actually, I think it's important just to, to wrap with this. We're a group full right now in this room. I think we set up 208 chairs, and there's maybe 25 empty ones, so maybe 175 some odd people in the room. And sin and our relationship to sin is a part of every single life here. Our thoughts, our emotions, or our actions. I don't believe that this side of eternity we will be a sinless people, but not because I lack hope in the effectiveness of the sanctification of the Spirit. But I think it has to do with that idea of our mortal bodies. Paul will go on in Romans 8 to talk about our redeemed bodies. Actually talk about this hope that we have. That, hey, this, what you're experiencing now, this, this tie to the physical world, even that, that will be fully redeemed. That will be something that is transformed in eternity and it will exist without sin or pain or death or sorrow. Those things will go away. That's part of our hope. That's part of our future hope. But if I could say two things for today, one would be um, to encourage you. If right now you are dealing with sin on some level, and maybe one of those resonated more than another, or two of those resonated more than another, your thoughts, your emotions, or your actions, there is power in the Spirit of God for you to fight the battle and win. You, if you are in Christ, do not have to be ruled by sin. You have more power than you think today. And then the second part of that is a call to endurance. You have more power than you think today, but you have less patience than you need. It's a frustrating reality. And we would want transformation to happen instantaneously. Anybody starting a diet this week? Just out of curiosity. 
It's a, I mean, honestly, it's a great picture. And even our, for some of us, our, our battle with our physical weight, our uh, eating, our thing, you know, exercise, things of that nature, can be something that corresponds to our spiritual life. Sometimes there's just the, these peaks and these valleys, and we, well, we fail and we flounder, and it just feels like we, we are stuck in this cycle and we're never going to grow. I want to say something to you. As it relates to sin today, you have more power than you think but there is an endurance that's needed. A continuing on of the battle to fight sin in your life. When you do it, Christ is honored in your choices. You give glory to God when you fight the battle for sin. It's actually saying, I receive my salvation and I want to offer my body back to you as a living sacrifice. I want to give you this worship of being somebody that seeks righteousness with the words that I speak, the thoughts that I have, the emotions that I feel. God, I want you to be honored in my body. And then there's this opportunity to actually tell people that the gospel is true. Because you can actually speak to who you were and who you've now become. Even if you gave your life to Jesus a week ago, you can talk about who you were and who you've become. But if you gave your life to Jesus 20 years ago, you can talk about who you were and who you've become. And that story is a critical story for people to know and experience that this gospel has power to change and transform. You telling your story. And then lastly, when you submit yourself to Jesus and you allow his righteousness to reign as opposed to sin reigning, well, you get to actually bring the kingdom of God to earth. You are a blessing to this world. They get to experience the joy of the Lord because your joy is present. There's something about that that lifts people's eyes to the King of kings and the Lord of lords when you bring the kingdom of God to earth with how you live. I'm going to bring the worship team up. We're going to take some time to respond. Um, there are thing, areas to, to take takeaways. Uh, the first and most immediate is through our prayer team. You don't have to get explicit with how sin might have some reigning or ruling or dominion in your life today. But if you would like prayer... Just even for some of that initial readiness to react differently to sin, overcoming of the the power of sin in your life, uh, this is a great moment just to go and to be prayed for and ministered to in that space. That's the first thing. It's just that immediate reaction of saying, I can use prayer because sin's got a grip and I I don't want it to have that grip on my life to go and be prayed for. We'll have both men and women in the back. If you would like to be prayed for by a man or by a woman, we would have both available for you. The second thing, and this relies pretty heavily on you being in a community group, but um, in Christian community, particularly this week, if you have a guy's group or a gal's group, I know sometimes just when it comes to sin, it's great to have those moments of being able to look face-to-face with a group of guys or face-to-face with a group of gals and to say, "Here's, here's where I'm struggling. And there's an opportunity for you to, in community, invite people into your journey of sanctification. That's the second thing. And the third one's more of a long-term project. 
I learned it from my dad. You might not have had a, a dad that taught you that, and that's fine, but it's to be a journaler. To actually just write down some of the things that you're going through because sometimes we even forget what we look like. You ever look back on a picture and just be like, I looked like that? <laughs> sometimes I look at my wedding pictures and I think, Kristen married that guy? <laughs> looked like a goofball. What were you thinking? But even in that, there's, just, there's an opportunity to look back and to say, God has been changing me over time. And I am a different person today than I was six years ago or 12 years ago or 25 years ago. And it's something you can just mark time with your journey. And I, just, I recommend that as a way of seeing the long-term growth of what God's doing.